All right. Well, we will have our Bible study now. All right. So what we're going to look at today is, again, an extension of things that were introduced this morning, and namely, how it is that Melchizedek is a type or a shadow of Christ, and in what ways is there continuity, or is he prefiguring the work, the person, the ministry of Christ, right? That's the point uh, that is being brought forward in Hebrews chapter 7, that there is a similarity. There are these points of connection and continuity between Melchizedek and between the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this way of interpreting or understanding the Bible uh, is a very important aspect of interpretation, that there are many symbols or shadows, types, illustrations in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament as well. We just partook of a symbol. <clears throat> the, the bread and the cup symbolize for us the very body and blood of Christ, and they are reminders to us of these spiritual realities. The physical is there representing some spiritual truth for the benefit and the sustaining of our faith. And there are many such things, not only in the New Testament, but primarily in the Old Testament. There existed many shadows, ways in which God was communicating into the world some truth, some understanding about Christ and His ministry, the way of salvation in various persons, various ordinances, institutions, uh, events that took place, you know, in the Old Testament. And uh, this is one of the uh, aspects of the Old Covenant is that there were many of these types of ordinances or shadows that were there to prefigure or to communicate spiritual, spiritual truths and realities to the people that find their fulfillment ultimately in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's look at a couple of passages first just to establish that this way of thinking in terms of shadow and substance or symbol and the things symbolized, that this is indeed taught in the Bible. First, Colossians 3.17. Colossians chapter 3. I mean, chapter 2. I was like, what? Chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Chapter 2, 16 and 17 says, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. There, he uses this distinction of shadow and substance. There are things that are shadows here. He mentions specifically food, drink, what that would take to be the food and dietary laws and restrictions of the Old Covenant, then also festival, new moon, Sabbath. These things are shadows of what is to come, but the substance of these things belongs to Christ. Christ is the body of these shadows and the fulfillment of these things. Also, Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Romans 5.14 Romans chapter 5, verse 14 says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Adam was a type 
of him who was to come. That is a type of Christ, which is who he brings up throughout the rest of these verses. He's making a point of connection or comparison between Adam and as Adam served as representative of the human race, right? As a federal head over his people. So Christ also serves as a representative of his people. Just as in Adam, certain things were true of all those who came from Adam. So also there are things that are true of Christ, which will also be true of his people because of their connection to him. There is a connection or a typology in Adam, and it is fulfilled in Christ. Hebrews chapter 8. There are many passages in Hebrews that deal with this, but we'll look at two. First, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5. Hebrews chapter 8. Well, actually, let's read 4 and 5. It says, Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. There, in the law, there were contained copies and shadows of heavenly things. Nearly every aspect of their worship was a copy or a shadow of a heavenly spiritual reality that was then given to them in these copies or in these shadows, which were there to teach them, to hold them in uh, suspense until the reality would come, until these things were fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. At which point, this is a, a big argument that is being made in the book of Hebrews, when the reality comes, then what do you do with the shadow? you set it aside. It no longer has any use. It is useless and it's not fit anymore when the substance has come. Then you put your focus on the substance and you put the shadow to the side. Then also Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10 verse 1. It says, For the law... Since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of the things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer, continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. One of the principles in terms of understanding the law is that the law contains shadows of good things to come. And here, specifically, he's talking about sacrifices, in this, in this context. So this would be true of other aspects of, as well. Here he's speaking of sacrifices. The sacrifices that were made in the Old Covenant by the priest of Aaron, the animal sacrifices, these were shadows of the good things to come. But they were not the very form of the thing. And this is why they could never take away the sins of the people. Though they offered them repeatedly year after year after year after year, They were never able to deal with this issue of the sin of the people, and they were never intended to deal with the issue of the sin of the people. The purpose is to be a shadow, to be a type, to foretell or to uh, picture something that is going to come, and that the hope should be in the reality. 
the good thing that would be revealed, that is where the forgiveness of sins would be found. Not in the sacrifice of animals, not in the blood of bulls and goats, but in the sacrifice of the body of Christ once for all. In the very blood of Christ, this is where the forgiveness of sins was found. And that reality was taught to them by way of a shadow through the sacrifices there in the Old Covenant. So when we are dealing with types, there is the type and then there is the anti-type, or there is the symbol and the thing signified. Or in Colossians 2, there is the shadow, and there is the substance or the body. And there are points of continuity or similarity between the one and the other. But ultimately, the uh, fulfillment, right, the body, the substance, is always superior to the shadow. Right, It is always superior and it exceeds what is there portrayed in the shadow. And one such shadow or type in the Old Testament is the person of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a type of Christ. And this is what he is dealing with here in chapter 7. Many of these things that we're going to talk about, we're going to bring these up repeatedly over the next several weeks. But I thought it would be good at the beginning to give a thorough overview of the various ways in which Melchizedek is a type of Christ, or how it is that Jesus is the fulfillment of what was portrayed or foreshadowed in this person of Melchizedek, so that we have it in one place, you know, one place, one one stop shop for the fulfillment of Melchizedek. So that's what we're going to do today, and here we have nine points, nine points of similarity or continuity between Melchizedek and between Jesus Christ. Number one, we'll do these in points. Jesus Christ is the true king of righteousness and king of peace. Here, again, when it speaks of Melchizedek, he is, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and also he is king of Salem, which is king of peace. King of righteousness and king of peace, and this is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is king of righteousness, and he is king of peace, and always in that order. King of righteousness, king of peace. He makes us righteous, he grants us righteousness, and then on the basis of us being made righteous in Christ, what is the result? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, right? It is our sin that causes us to have no peace with God, to be at enmity with God. As it says, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked, Right? In order for there to be peace between us and God, then there must be the establishment of righteousness. And Jesus is king of righteousness. His kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness. And therefore, it is also a kingdom of peace. And he makes his subjects, those who occupy his kingdom, he makes them into the very righteousness of God. He is our source of righteousness. And then as a basis of receiving the righteousness of Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, speaks of his kingdom in these ways, as a kingdom of justice or righteousness, and then also a kingdom of peace. Isaiah 9, verse 6 says, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom 
to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So there, he establishes his kingdom. He upholds it with justice and righteousness. And then the result of this justice and righteousness is that there is no end of the increase of his government or of peace. He is called the Prince of Peace. He brings peace to his people. He brings peace to this earth that is not at peace. Right right now, the world, as we know it, as we see it, is not at rest. There is no peace in this world, and there is no peace with sinners. They are at enmity, at war with God. But Christ, through his kingdom, brings both righteousness and peace to the people of God. Jeremiah 23 and ultimately to this earth as well, because he will rule from sea to shining sea over the entire world. As the water covers the sea, the glory of the Lord will spread in Christ. 23, Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, He will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he is called the Lord, our righteousness. So there, this righteous branch coming from David, who will reign as king, he will do justice and righteousness in the land. His throne is a throne of righteousness from which justice and righteousness go. And then the result is... Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely, which is peace. They will have peace and safety. They will be protected from all harm and from all of their enemies through the righteous reign of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the true king of righteousness and the true king of peace, just as foreshadowed in Melchizedek. Number two, Jesus Christ is the only and true priest of the Most High God. This is also what was spoken of Melchizedek. He was priest of most high God. Priest of the most high God. And this is true of Christ. He is the priest, the high priest, over the household of God or over the people of God. The one that is serving, not in the temple made with human hands, the one that is not of this creation. He is serving in the heavenly tabernacle. He has gone within the veil. He is at the right hand of God. And this is where he performs his ministry as high priest over the people of God. He is there in this capacity. Melchizedek is one of, if not, the greatest type of Christ in the Old Testament. And it is not accidental, it is not coincidental that it relates primarily to the priesthood of Christ. Right? That's how it's being used in Hebrews chapter 7. Though he does mention there that he is king of righteousness and king of Salem, ultimately the reason he's bringing Melchizedek forward in Hebrews chapter 7 is in relationship to his office of priest, that he is priest of the Most High God. And this is necessary because there is no office that is more necessary for our salvation than Jesus taking up the office of high priest over the household of faith. Because of sin, right? Because of sin, a high priest is necessary for sinners to be reconciled to God and for us to be able to worship God. We cannot draw near to God 
without a mediator, without a high priest who can represent us to God, who can reconcile us to God. This high priest must, if he's going to reconcile two parties, he must possess the nature of both parties that he is seeking to bring together. Together. Now, in terms of this relationship, the two parties that are at odds are is holy God and it is sinful man. And Jesus is the only mediator, the only priest who can bring us to God because in his one person is the unity of divinity and humanity. He is both fully God and fully man in the one person, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he can bring us to God because he himself is of one nature with God. And he can bring God to us because he shares our human nature as well. And we are uh, reconciled to God in the person of Jesus Christ as high priest over the people of God. Sin is what separates us from God. And we need a high priest who can offer sacrifice for our sins. One who can do so, not in the tabernacle that is on earth. We need one who can go into heaven, who can ascend into the heavens and offer a sacrifice for our sins in that altar that is above, at the very throne of God. And who is the only one qualified to do this? Only he who descended from heaven can ascend into heaven and do such things. No high priest on this earth is qualified to serve in this role. Only our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Only he is priest of the Most High God who can actually offer sacrifice for sin that reconciles us to God so that the worshipers are able to draw near to God. It requires a high priest who is like this. Hebrews chapter 5. There's many passages that we could look at here, but we'll restrain ourselves to two. Hebrews 5, 1 to 10, and then 8, 1 to 6. Hebrews 5, 1 to 10. It says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to God, in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. As for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes this honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself, so as to become a high priest. But he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Then also chapter 8 Verses 1 to 6. 8, 1 to 6. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. This is really nice when the apostle tells us this is the main point of the passage right here. So if you ever listen to a preacher and they don't get the main point, when it says the main point is this, you know that guy, he's not paying attention, okay? Now, the main point in what has been said is this. 
We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on a better promise. So he is the only true high priest of God Most High who is able to reconcile sinners to God. Number three, Jesus blesses all of his children, all of his spiritual offspring, the offspring of Abraham, just as Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek. In the account with Melchizedek, Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And it is obvious that the one who is superior blesses the one who is inferior. Melchizedek was not blessed by Abraham, but rather Abraham was blessed by him. Well, in the same way, Jesus is the one who blesses us. He blesses his people. And in Abraham, you have embodied the entire body of believers. That Abraham is a head, a representative of the entire church, or all of the people of God, all of the children of faith. Right? Those who are of faith are sons of Abraham, who is the man of faith. So what is happening to Abraham in the book of Genesis is a symbol or type itself of the whole body of believers, or what is true of us. He is the example of what it means to be a man of faith, to live the life of faith. And as Melchizedek blesses Abraham, so also our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the one who blesses us. And what does Jesus bless us with? Well, look at Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1. He blesses us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 1. In verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Then, through the rest of this chapter, he unfolds what these manifold blessings are. Jesus is the source of all the blessings that we receive. Every spiritual blessing that comes to us from God comes through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the one who blesses us with all of these spiritual blessings. So just as Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek, so we are blessed by the greater Melchizedek, who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Number four, Jesus receives homage from his people. Just as Abraham paid homage to Melchizedek. In this encounter with Abraham and Melchizedek, Melchizedek received a tithe. He received one-tenth from Abraham. And this was Abraham's way of paying homage to this man who was superior to him. He outranked him. He was greater than him in this way. And this is something that is common uh, even among men, that those who are superior, right, those who are of lesser rank, 
the subjects pay homage to their king. They give proper respect, proper greeting, proper honor to the king who is in authority over them. Well, this is what Abraham did to Melchizedek by giving him this tithe. He showed his homage to the one who was superior. Well, this is what we are to do with our Lord Jesus Christ. The church, the believer, is to receive from us all glory and all honor. We do not owe Jesus merely one-tenth. We owe him everything. Our very lives are to be given in homage to Christ, in honor to him, to the praise of his glory. All of our praise, all of our glory, all of our thanks is to be offered to God through Jesus Christ. He is the object of the church's worship. We worship God the Father through Jesus Christ, and we pay homage to the Son, and when we pay homage to Him, we are also giving due homage to the Father as well. We worship God through Christ. He receives all of this glory and honor from us. Ephesians 3. Ephesians chapter 3, uh, verses uh, 20, uh, 20 and 21. It says, But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught, just as the truth is in Christ Jesus. I'm in the wrong chapter. That's chapter 4. Chapter 3, I was like, man, this does not make sense. Now, all right, chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Ah, now this, this makes sense. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. We will praise Christ for all eternity, for all that he's done for us. We will cast our crowns at his feet. And this will be unceasing praise and glory to him for all eternity. Well, that should not begin only in the life to come. Even now, it begins in the life of the believer in that we are to dedicate our entire being to him. This is as we remember in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, right? That we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to him, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual worship. To not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, that by testing we may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and pleasing. We are to present our entire body, our lives, as a sacrifice of praise to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Number five and six, these kind of go together. So we'll take them together. Number five, Jesus Christ was without predecessor unto his office as high priest. In terms of his qualifications as high priest, in the tribe of Levi, or in the Levitical priesthood, that office was transferred from father to son on the basis of a genealogy. And if you could not prove that, then you were not allowed to serve in that capacity. We remember during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah that there were certain Levites who could not prove their heritage or their lineage, and until that could be proven, 
they were not allowed to serve in the temple. They weren't allowed to do the duties because it needed to be established on the basis of this law of successive generations. It passed from Aaron to his son to his grandson and on and on and on it went from its establishment all the way until it was brought to its completion. That it was based on this law of succession, right? This is the way that they had it. The high priest received this office from his predecessor, who received it from his, who received it from his, all the way back until it was established by God through the prophet Moses in Aaron. This is when the high priest was established. Jesus did not receive his call as high priest on the basis of a predecessor, right? He didn't receive it in that way. uh, Hebrews 7 Well, we'll read that at the end of this next one. Hebrews 7, 11 to 16 is where we're going to go. So there is this difference then that Christ was without predecessor unto his office of high priest. And that's why in Hebrews uh, chapter 7, it speaks of Melchizedek being without father or without mother, right? Without a genealogy. And this is also true of Christ in terms of the high priest. Now we know that Jesus has two genealogies that are given in Matthew and Luke, but these are presenting his qualifications as both the descendant of Adam and the descendant of Abraham and also a descendant from David. But it's not doing it in reference to his role as high priest. In terms of high priestly office, he had no predecessor in that way, right? He did not come from the house of or from the family of Aaron. And in that way, the point number six, Jesus Christ was a priest without a genealogy. His pedigree was not associated with the tribe of Levi or with the family of Aaron. He received it by an extraordinary call from God, by an oath from God, where God conferred this honor upon him. Hebrews 7, 11. Hebrews 7, 11 to 16. It says, now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? Notice there, these two orders are put here together. The order of Melchizedek in contrast to the order of Aaron. These are these two priesthood that exist here in the Bible. These are the things that he is contrasting. He says, for when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law as well. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek who has become such, not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. So the qualifications for Jesus to receive his priesthood were not the law of physical requirement. It was not that he was of this tribe from which God gave the priesthood, and he descended from them, and that is his qualifications to take up this role of high priest. His qualification is the power of an indestructible life. 
God gave him an indestructible life, an eternal life, a resurrection from the dead. And then God gave to him this priesthood, not according to the order of Aaron, but according to this other order that was established before Aaron, that is the order of Melchizedek. And in terms of his priesthood, Jesus was without father and without mother, without genealogy. And in that way also, Melchizedek is a type of the very person of Christ. Because in terms of Jesus's human nature, he was without father. He did not have a human father, but was conceived by the Holy Spirit of God. And then in terms of his divine nature, he was without mother because he always existed eternally. Right? And in this way, Melchizedek is a shadow of the very person of Christ, his humanity and divinity united in the one person, Jesus Christ. Number seven, point number seven. Okay, Jesus Christ, in relation to his divine nature, had neither beginning of days or end of life. This is spoken of concerning Melchizedek there in verse three. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. In the narrative concerning Melchizedek, there is no father given concerning him. There is no mother given concerning him. That is not true of these other patriarchs that are found in the Bible, right? We can trace Abraham all the way back to Adam, because you have these genealogies that connect the father to the son. We know when the son was born in relationship to the life of the father, and then we know when the father died. He lived this many days, and then, or this many years, and then he died, right? This is the way it is all throughout there, this portion of the Old Testament scripture, all the way from Adam, traced down to Abraham, but not with Melchizedek. No father is given concerning him. No mother is given concerning him. No genealogy is given concerning him. It doesn't tell us when his days began, nor does it tell us when his life ended. And in this way, it says he's made like the son of God, right? He has this mysteriousness about him that has an appearance of the son of God. And just as it was said of Melchizedek, without father, without mother, without beginning of days or end of life, then this is true of our Lord Jesus Christ in relationship to his divine nature. His human nature had beginning of days. This was his conception and his incarnation. That is when his human nature had the beginning of days. His human nature also had an end of life when he died on the cross. Now, he didn't stay dead. He was resurrected from the dead. But his human life did come to an end. But his divine nature had no beginning of days. Jesus is eternally divine. And his divine nature could, not, could never die. When Jesus died on the cross, we're not to understand in that, that God died, that his divine nature died on the cross, because how could he, who is the source of all life, who is life in himself, how could the divine nature of Christ die? Right? It's impossible. When he died on the cross, we're to understand which part of Christ died, which nature died. Well, it was his human nature that died there on the cross. He is without beginning of days. He is without end of life. This is typifying the divinity of Jesus Christ. John chapter 1. John 1 verses 1 to 3. 
John 1, 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. In the beginning, the Word of God existed with God. He is eternally God. He has neither beginning of days, nor does He ever have end of life, but he has life in himself. Point number eight. Jesus Christ really is the son of God. In Hebrews chapter seven, verse three, it said Melchizedek was made like the son of God, but Jesus is the son of God, right? He is the only begotten son from the father, full of grace and truth. He is the son of God. John 1, 14 John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is who our Lord Jesus Christ is. He is the Son of God. Melchizedek was a type of Christ. He foreshadowed the Son, that Christ would be the Son of God because He was made like the Son of God in this way. Then lastly, number nine, Jesus Christ is high priest forever. Forever. His high priestly office, He will never set it aside. When He became high priest for His people, He took this role perpetually for all eternity. This goes, uh, corresponds with the incarnation of Christ. When Jesus was incarnate, when the Son of God took on human flesh, He did not take on human flesh temporarily. It wasn't just while He was on the earth, and then after He died, then He rose just as a spirit or as the divine divine part, and then He set aside His human nature and no longer possesses it. Jesus Christ will exist for all eternity as both fully God and fully man in the one person, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is necessary for our salvation. We could not be saved if Jesus did not take on a human nature forever. Because how, for how long do we need a high priest? We have to have a high priest forever. And as a high priest, one of the qualifications is that he must have a human nature. So Christ took on our nature and he took it on for all eternity. And in this way, he is able to serve as a high priest over the household of God for all eternity, forever and ever. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Romans 6. We know that certainly the divine nature of Christ is eternal, right? That Of course, God can never die. It's impossible for that to happen. But Romans chapter 6, 8 to 11, speaking of the body of Christ or the human nature of Christ, after the resurrection, death no longer has any dominion over the human nature of Christ. He has the power of an indestructible life. Romans 6, 8 to 11. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, 
he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Christ being raised from the dead is never to die again. Death has no mastery over him. In his incarnation, the body that he took on was a body like ours, one that is subject to death, one that could die and one that did die on the cross. But when God raised him from the dead, he raised him with a new body, with a different body, a spiritual body, a resurrected body, a powerful body, an immortal and eternal body that can never die. And death no longer has any dominion over the body or over the human nature of Christ. And this is why Jesus is uniquely qualified to serve as high priest. Because God is eternal, and because our sins are against an eternal God, we need a high priest who can be high priest for us forever, for all time, right? For all eternity. But in the old covenant, because the high priests were taken from among men, and because those high priests were still subject to death, they could not perpetually serve on behalf of the people. Death prohibited them from maintaining this office and maintaining this ministry there on behalf of the people. Even the best of them, like Aaron, like Eleazar, like Phineas, these were righteous men. These were good men, men of faith, true believers. But even they were prohibited from maintaining that office and position because of death. At most, a high priest could serve 40, 50, 60 years, depending on how long he lived. He may be able to serve in that capacity. But eventually, all of them, even the best of them, what was going to happen to them? They're all going to die. And when they died, someone else took up the office, his son. And who knows whether or not his son is a righteous man or a deadbeat. Because some of them, certainly the high priests that were serving during the days of Christ, they were not good men. They were very wicked men, right? Very evil men. And they were the ones serving in this capacity, in this office, as high priest. Well, we need a high priest who can serve forever. And one who is undefiled, separated from sinners, holy, innocent, right? Exalted above the heavens. And who is this one? Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7, 23 to 25. It says, The former priests, on the one hand, existed in great numbers, because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Here, the former priests, that is the priests according to the order of Aaron, they existed in great numbers. There were many of them, many priests at one time in, the, in a generation, and then also many high priests over the history of Israel. A 1,400-year period of time, there were many priests, right? The former priests, they existed in a greater number because they were prevented from death from continuing, right? This is obvious. They would die, and then someone else would have to take their place. And then even during their own generation, No high priest was able in his own person to bear all of the weight and responsibility of ministering on behalf of the people. So these duties were distributed amongst his brothers as well. In these lesser priests who would do various components and actions on behalf of the high priest. But all of that ministry was summed up or revolved around this one office, the office of the high priest. Well, in the case of Christ... 
There is no need for him to have many attendants to help him bear the burden because he is able sufficiently in his own person by himself to bear all of the weight of the ministry and of this office of high priest because he has the power of the immortal God on his side. Does he need anyone to assist him in making reconciliation for the sins of his people? No, and if we say that Jesus needs help, we're blaspheming him, right? It is an evil thing to say that Christ needs assistance from us or from anyone else. His own mother, there are some who say that. Yes, the Roman Catholics, that's what they teach, that he needs help from his mother, his mother Mary. And she's the one that assists him and helps him in reconciling his people. And he needs help from the saints and from the church and from the Pope and from our, our own works and deeds as well. Does Jesus need any assistance when it comes to reconciling men to God? No, he's able to do all of it by himself. So he doesn't need attendants to help him. Then also, does he need a successor? Someone to come after him after he dies to take up this role? No, he doesn't because he lives forever. He always lives to make intercession for them. And this is why he and he alone is able to save to the uttermost, right? He is able to save forever those who draw near to God. If Jesus lived for only a million years, this is all hypothetical. If he had that role for only a million years, then he could save us for a million years. But after that time came to an end and he stepped down from that role, what would happen to us? We'd all perish, yes. We need a high priest who can maintain that role forever. And if he can maintain it forever, then he's able to save us forever. So that there's never any doubt of the standing of God's people with God. Eternal life with God is based upon the eternal priesthood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. He always lives for all eternity. In one billion years, he will live. A billion years after that, he will live. For all eternity, he will live. And what does he live for on our behalf? To make intercession for the people of God so that we can draw near to God through him. That is our hope, our confidence. Everything is based upon what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has done for us. So these are nine ways then in which there is something uh, typified or symbolized in the person of Melchizedek that is then fulfilled and brought to its consummation in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it gives us great confidence in terms of our salvation and what he does for us so that we would depend upon Christ and upon Christ alone. So with that, let's pray and then we will be dismissed. And I'm going to ask uh, Mr. Michael, would you mind praying and dismissing us today?